Welcome to the PZNP. I'm your host, Becky Carson. Join us as we tackle one of the most essential cornerstones of healthcare practice, documentation. In this segment, we are only focusing on the outpatient note, so you'll have to check back for an inpatient perspective another time. Clinical notes are the major outcome of your daily work. You'll write one for every patient, every day, for the rest of your years in practice. So it's important to understand what's involved and the learned skill of documenting competently, accurately, and efficiently. Documenting your patient visit accomplishes several things. First, it's the communication from you to either your future self or a colleague as to what's going on with the patient at this visit. It makes note of this particular moment in time because we know that health exists on a continuum. Your documentation of how the child is doing today during this 15-minute encounter is valuable when monitoring things like growth and development, chronic diseases, and progression of illness. Next, it's your opportunity to apply your knowledge of pediatrics to a real-life clinical scenario and demonstrate your understanding of the primary care principles in a way that not only impresses your faculty, me, but can actually make an impact on a child's life. You should be using evidence-based practice to guide your management, so what better time to apply that knowledge than a live patient encounter? And lastly, it's an important interaction with the medical legal system. I'll touch on this topic several times throughout the podcast, but you'll see that when your note goes into the electronic medical record, that you're signing a legal document as to your experience as a provider with that patient. I once worked with a colleague who was my favorite kind of physician. She was a nurse first doctor. She had been called to a medical malpractice case. She explained to me how unapologetic the lawyers for the patient were, saying things like, well, doctor, you have a typo here. If you were so careless as to have a typo in the medical documentation, shouldn't we assume that you were also so careless in your medical decision-making of this case? That experience shook her and shaped her in her way of charting, and that story has actually impacted me as well. For years after that, Every time I wrote a note, I pictured myself sitting on the stand in a courtroom and defending my documentation to a judge. And then some years later, I had an unfortunate situation where one of my patients had severe decompensation as a progression of illness in the days after I saw her. But in my documentation on the day that I saw her, I had written under my physical exam under general that she was running around the room playing chase and that her mouth was covered in a candy bar she had eaten in the waiting room. That in conjunction with a specific telling of my medical rationale and the remainder of my history and physical proved essential in protecting me from a mother's threat that I had been negligent. I certainly never would have thought that anything bad would happen to this child, but I'm so thankful for my detailed charting habits. The end of the story is that the child ended up okay and was able to be discharged home. But I want you to have these detailed charting habits too. So let's get started. Remember that, as I said, we're only going to talk about outpatient notes. This certainly won't be prescriptive or the end-all be-all of documenting, but it's enough to get you started on your assignments so that you can receive some substantive and individualized feedback. Your clinic note should read like a book. 
when you read a book, you read the first chapter and then the second chapter and so on. The information you read in the first chapter should inform the rest of the chapters too. So any information you learn in chapter one informs you about things you learn in chapter two and three and four. The same is true of documentation. And to bring another literary reference to it, we providers and faculty are big lovers of dramatic irony, meaning that we love to be teased with knowledge related to the end of the story in the beginning. So when you're writing your HPI, you want to guide the reader towards your differential diagnosis and medical decision-making. Everything that you choose to intervene on with this child should be justified in the documentation with either history or physical exam findings that warrant this workup, diagnosis, treatment, etc. Okay, let's get started with the HPI. Your patient comes into clinic with the basics of, you know, their name, age, sex, and a chief complaint. Before you even go see the patient, you can get some of your documentation done by reviewing the chart and the past medical history, nursing notes, and vital signs. I've gone into the room without doing this before and have inevitably regretted it when I stick my foot in my mouth or miss some giant essential detail. Don't be that person. Be better. Your HPI is a story of what's going on with your patient in their own words. This should be in layman's terms, meaning you can use words like redness instead of erythema. And you should include anything that happened related to the story up until the moment you walked into the room. If the patient vomited before you walked in the room, that goes in HPI. If they vomit during your exam, that's physical exam. You're gonna tell the story. Be detailed, but succinct. I know that's a really annoying task to require, but that's part of the skill. Make the story make sense and be as brief as possible. This might mean that chronological order works best, or you might need to write different paragraphs about different problems. I found that advanced practice nurses are great users of patient quotes. Use pertinent positives and negatives to guide the reader on your thought process, either towards or away from a certain diagnosis. And when you're writing a well-child check note, be sure to include the different domains of development and their current status with accomplishing these milestones. You'll also want to include things like diet, elimination, sleep, safety, things like that that go into a well-child visit. Also included in the subjective part of the note is information like current medications and their dosage. This can either be one-time doses that they took that day or regular medications. Include allergies to medicines and immunizations. For my students, you'll need to list out the immunizations that they've had one by one, something like DTaP times three, Hib times three, rotavirus times two, etc. Because I know the immunization schedule, so it'd be fine for me to write immunizations up to date, but I don't know yet that you know the immunization schedule. So you've got to get regular practice with memorizing it. When I'm taking a history on a patient, I always ask if they're up to date, and the parents almost always say yes, even when they aren't, because they don't know the vaccine schedule by heart either. So after I say, are your immunizations up to date? And they say, yes. I clarify the last set that they've had. So for instance, if I have a 16-month patient, I ask, are their immunizations up to date? Yes. Great. So they last got their 15-month vaccines? You'd be surprised at the number of parents who think back and say, oh, wait, 
her 15-month appointment is next week, and she had a fever at 12 months. So I guess the last set of vaccines she got was at six months. <laughs> this has major implications for our medical decision-making sometimes, especially when we're talking about sick visits and exposures. So it's important for you to memorize the schedule and get practice with applying it to your thought processes. There's a separate podcast elsewhere on the Peds and Peep about how to talk with vaccine-hesitant parents, and I invite you to tune into that one too. Okay, I digress. Back to the HPI. You'll want to review their history, including any past medical history, past surgical history, family history, and social history. I love a good social history. It can include things like daycare, siblings, sick contacts, recent travel, school attendance and performance, extracurricular activities, family structure, the list goes on. All of these details certainly will not be pertinent at every single visit, but you're going to pull from your knowledge of what could go into a history to guide the reader toward more important information related to the visit. In family history, we're really only concerned with siblings, parents, and grandparents. I have mothers telling me all the time about their great aunt twice removed who had heart problems at 92, and I've got to guide the storytelling back to the immediate family. So now you're ready to move on to review of systems. The review of systems is an inventory of symptoms related to specific body systems. It's different from the HPI in that it includes questions about specific clinical symptoms, which the patient might have overlooked or forgotten, but the provider asked during the history. In practice, you'll see folks sometimes use the review of systems sparingly and write CHPI for further details, or use phrases like all other systems reviewed and negative, because your review of systems can be written in the HPI section when using terms or phrases like positive cough or denies headache. While this is very pertinent for efficiency, completeness, and billing, my students should not use these phrases. At the same time, you'll want to avoid doing what we call double dipping, meaning that you put an item from the HPI in the review of systems too. This can be frowned upon by coders. In practice, in order to receive full credit for a complete review of systems, you have to have 10 systems documented. Lots of practices will have patients and parents fill out questionnaires about possible symptoms, and all they have to do is take a look at it and sign it in order to get credit for the review of systems. My students should get used to asking questions of their patient related to their chief complaint or reason for visit. It doesn't make sense to ask about chest pain for a patient who's here with ringworm on their hand, does it? I want you to get practice being thoughtful when taking your history and give yourself credit for the insightful questions that you ask. Okay, now you're ready to move on to the physical exam. I'll be brief here because you should have already taken a course on advanced assessment. It may be helpful to go back to your course notes and use them and the textbook to guide your documentation. But here are a few general rules on the objective portion of your note. You're gonna start with the weight in kilograms. We always use kilograms in pediatrics because we use weight-based dosing for them. My students should also list percentiles of their growth based on the CDC or WHO charts for well-child visits. The WHO charts tend to give more accurate depiction of weight because they're based on international reference ranges for children who breastfeed all over the world, whereas the CDC charts can show children as artificially deflated. 
You'll need weight, length, and weight for length percentiles in younger patients and BMI in the older ones. Then you'll document your vital signs. This should include at a minimum heart rate and respiratory rate because I know you can measure that with your own stethoscope. Then you'll document the physical exam, starting with a general observation and proceeding from head to toe. It's perfectly fine to document something that your preceptor said that they found because it may take a while for you to hone your assessment skills and things like using the otoscope and ophthalmoscope. But remember that you are responsible and accountable for what you document. I had a student who documented that he did a complete fundoscopic exam on a two-year-old presenting with diarrhea. I know very few providers who aren't pediatric ophthalmologists who would assert that they could not confidently complete that exam. And this is certainly not pertinent to diarrhea either. So it made me question everything he had written and whether he had actually even examined this patient properly at all. Furthermore, you need to make sure that you're commenting on pediatric age-specific findings. Don't write a newborn note without commenting on the fontanelles and sutures. Likewise, I'm going to wonder about your thought processes if you're telling me that this two-week-old has no carotid bruise or jugular venous distension. Make the exam tailored to where the child is developmentally and physiologically. You can learn a lot from a child by just playing with them. You'll get into a rhythm, but I generally start with things that are least likely to bother them and end with what will make them scream. Examine them in the mom's arms if they're showing you signs of stranger anxiety. And listen first, palpate the belly, then look in their ears, which is going to make them scream. And then you can finish by looking in their mouth. And that brings us to the GU portion of the exam. Don't forget to look in the diaper. Older children need a GU exam too, and you should not skip over this just because the child has a sense of privacy and doesn't want to show you their private parts willingly. That's actually a good thing. And before you do anything, you'll need to tell the child at an age-appropriate way that it's time to look at their private parts, but you're just going to do it to make sure that they're healthy. And we don't do this anywhere else but at the doctor's office. And we only do it because mom or dad are here and they say it's okay because we're checking to make sure that you're healthy. And then when you're done with the exam, make sure to tell them that they look normal and healthy, especially teenagers, because this is one of their biggest fears. Then document your findings using Tanner staging. It may be reasonable to do a focused exam for a sick visit, but make sure that you're including physical exam findings related to the chief complaint and diagnosis. If a child is presenting for vomiting and diarrhea, you'll wanna make sure you include physical exam findings related to their degree of dehydration. Talk about skin turgor, cap refill, if they have sunken eyes, how moist are their mucous membranes, their level of consciousness, tachycardia, etc. The focused exam is not an excuse to write a shortcut, faster note. In fact, it should be plenty detailed relating to more in-depth pertinent systems. Okay, now you're ready to do any diagnostic studies and start your differential diagnosis. I put these together because they can inform one another and I really don't care which order you put it in. For the differential diagnosis, there's more than one way to think about this, and we'll cover the larger task of developing a differential diagnosis in a different episode. 
but for now, you should list all the possible etiologies for the chief complaint. You can list them in number form. Sometimes I'll write versus, so something like viral URI versus pneumonia. Or another stylistic approach I'll sometimes use is to use the word not when you're in fact telling the reader a differential diagnosis item that you've considered but ruled out. So you could say something like contact dermatitis versus impetigo, not abscess. Mostly, I just want you to think more broadly and thoughtfully about what could be going on with your patient. In a well child, you might not have another differential diagnosis and that's perfectly fine. Next, you'll write your management plan. This includes any medications or therapies that you'll prescribe. I want you to be specific and write their weight-based dose as a prescription, just as you would send it to the pharmacy. You'll write anticipatory guidance, patient education, and follow-up. Remember that I feel strongly about using strong, quantifiable return criteria for sick visits. Lastly, you should give a critical case analysis of your patient. Think of this as the medical decision-making and where you justify your diagnosis or management with evidence from the literature. Tell me what you were thinking, why you did what you did, and how you knew it. You'll hear me ask you to change your color when writing your notes. This means that you're kind of giving me an aside where you can tell me that maybe you didn't agree with a choice your preceptor made, or maybe after going home, you were reading about the disease process and you decided that you should have sent another diagnostic study, or you could have used a different medication. Simply change the color of your font and tell me that you would have done differently and why. You'll see that your preceptors make clinical choices for a number of reasons. Maybe they are trying to keep customer service satisfaction high, so they send extra tests. Or maybe they had a patient 20 years ago that had a strange presentation, so they always do something in this one particular way. Or maybe they're trying to increase their billables. Whatever your reason, remember that you are not going to be tested in this course or on your boards on what your preceptor does. I care that you know the guidelines put forth by our national authorities on the issue and that their recommendations are based on countless data points from peer-reviewed, evidence-based literature. If you fail to make that distinction or blindly follow bad practice, you'll be getting an email from me. Actually, you'll be getting an email from me anyway, because these notes are a great way for faculty to interact with students and work on the application of knowledge in the course to real patient scenarios. I'll write you notes in a different font color and we'll expect a response within a few days. We'll write back and forth until you've sufficiently demonstrated a mastery of the patient case. In the beginning, this might take a few volleys, but by the end, you'll simply get little pearls of wisdom that I have to share. Cite your sources and make sure to include them in your references. You should always have a reference section for every patient because at minimum, you're gonna look at Bright Futures for Well Children and Harriet Lane for sick patients. You can take some shortcuts with copying and pasting some things, but just as I have to do in practice, anytime you copy something or use a pre-completed note, you have to read every single line to make sure that this is correct for this patient encounter. It's in these clinical notes that I can really see how well you're comprehending the didactic material and applying it to clinical. 
do me a favor and don't be afraid to cherry pick an interesting patient. It gives me the opportunity to do more teaching with you while you're in the learning role so that when you're out there on your own, you don't freak out when the same complicated patient walks through your door. You've already seen it before and thought through it really thoughtfully. I also want you to avoid writing the same note twice. You'll see tons of bronchiolitis, strep throat, and colds this winter. But you get one shot to write each note. Otherwise, I'll send it back to you and you're going to have to write another clinical note. Okay, that was a lot. But as I said, clinical notes are the major product of your work as a provider. And you should get used to writing them and writing them well. Don't expect perfection to start. In fact, they're going to take you about 10 times as long in the beginning because this is new for you. Be patient with yourself. I know you'll be so impressed with yourself by the end of the semester at what you're able to competently and confidently write. And when you're on your third cup of coffee on a late night, just remember, you're doing this for the kids. 